you turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 13. Continuing through Matthew 13, looking at parables about the kingdom this morning. As you turn there, I wonder if you've ever experienced something kind of unique that the people around you perhaps haven't experienced. Perhaps it was something really special or an incredible moment or an item that's just amazing that you got to to use or, or have a part in, and, and you're just trying to relay it, and, and people kind of look at you like you're crazy. I, I think for, for most gathered here, the idea of going to see a football game at Lambeau Field in sub-freezing temperature, the kind of the colder, the better type experience, snow is good, and there, there we go, yeah, there's a cheese head over there. Um, that's a hard thing to relay. I, I've talked to several of you guys in the past about that, and you go, I, don't, I would never do that. That's crazy. And, and so I'm like, no, 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 you would enjoy it. It's, it's not like standing outside by yourself. It's, it's like we're all huddled and stuck together, and so you're, it's a lot warmer than you think it is. And, and, and it's like this, and, and give you all these you know, explanations of why it's so fun and, and, and why it's neat, and try to compare them to different experiences you might have had at Rupp Arena or, or some other arena. And, and and still, there's times where you're like, I don't know, but then some of you are like, I want to do that sometime. That sounds like a lot of fun. Well, what we have this morning is, is in a way similar in which Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven like things that we see in, in our everyday life to help us understand what it is, what it's like. And so he continues with, with that statement as he goes through. We're looking this morning at verses 31 to 35, and then we'll look over at 44 to 46 as well and look at four parables, and each one of them has that statement, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so he's trying to explain to us and help us to, to further understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. Let's look at our first two parables this morning, 13 verses 31 to 35. He, he put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field it is the smallest of all seeds but when it is grown it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches he told them another parable the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouths in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, you have to remember that to the first century Jew is they hear Jesus teaching and they, they have in their mind the idea of what the, the kingdom would look like when it was inaugurated, the inaugurated kingdom of God, the idea that it would come and that it would be small and seemingly insignificant and hard to recognize perhaps would have come as a great surprise. The expectation was that the Messiah would come in power, that he would come out and cast out their adversaries and come in, in ruling, overthrowing their oppressors. But in the wisdom and the providence of God, when the kingdom was inaugurated, it was inaugurated as Christ incarnate, the Son of God, came as a baby born of a virgin in a little insignificant town of Bethlehem. 
He he didn't grow up in a palace. He didn't grow up with a lot of acclaim. He grew up under the tutelage and guidance of a carpenter. And so it was different than they anticipated. The kingdom was indeed upon them, but it was upon them in the life of a Nazarene who was born in a stable and had meager beginnings and led a misfit band of 12 young men. And so, knowing this, Jesus sits down and he explains what the kingdom is like so that they would understand why it is as it is. So he gives two parables to begin in verses 31 and 32 and then verse 33. The first one is the, the parable of the mustard seed in which Jesus says it's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants. The primary point that Jesus is making when he shares this parable is in using a mustard seed is not really its initial size or even its, its final size. The primary point that Jesus is making when he shares this parable is that what began small would grow and mature and be large ultimately. And not only did it grow in the parable, but we see that, that it grew to a size that the birds of the air nested in its branches. It made a difference. It was observable. What was small became big. It matured to what it was supposed to be. The second parable he gives in verse 33 is the parable of the leaven. Now, you know through Jesus' teaching, there's oftentimes where he warns of the leaven of the Pharisees. So leaven a lot of times is seen as something that is bad. It's an illustration to show how something can come and taint what is right or true. But leaven is not always described or used or seen in Scripture as, as something that's negative or, or bad. There's instances in, in Leviticus 7 and uh, 13 and 14, Leviticus 23, 17, where leaven is instructed to put in the bread as a purposeful act of the Lord, and, and, and it is a good thing. It's not always bad. It's not as though we flee leaven at all costs. The context here, again, we want to always keep context in mind. The context in this parable would lead us to understand that, that leaven is not bad. He's speaking in positive ways about the kingdom of heaven. He's helping us understand what it's like. And so here he says it's like leaven who, when a lady comes and she puts it in, in three bushels, it expands and she puts just a little bit in and it expands to all of them. It multiplies, it influences all of them. It's a picture of, of what is small influencing what is around it and becoming larger. It shows growth. It shows influence, perhaps influence from within. You see, these two parables are connected and teach really the same truth. They, they teach the same point, that the kingdom of heaven may have small beginnings, but it will grow in God's providence, in God's timing, and in God's ways. Now, we are, we're sitting at a vantage point, right? When we look back in history, we look back and we can see that it, it, it has indeed grown. We look back and we see that, that you know, to us it's not that big of a deal to think about, well, it began with, with 12 disciples and Jesus and it has expanded and changed the lives of literally millions of people across all of the globe. We look back and that's our vantage point in history, but if you can put yourself in the position of the disciples and the Jews that are hearing this, they don't see that. They don't have that opportunity to look back on history. They are there in the moment. They're there considering everything that's going on around them, considering the teachings of Christ. But we, 
in 21st century America, we have the privilege, the opportunity to look back and to see. And as believers, we should find great encouragement in this. We should find great encouragement that God is carrying out his plan just as he said he would do it. We find great encouragement, great hope that God is doing what he's doing in the way he's doing it, in the timing that he's doing it, just as he planned. And we see that. The parables teach this. History shows it, and we can look back upon it. Now, you may, you may want to note here, when you think about these parables, neither of these parables teach the idea that the kingdom is going to completely overtake the entire world. Right? The, the mustard seed, is, it grows to be the biggest tree in the garden, but it's not the biggest tree in all of creation. He certainly could have found a different tree if that was the point. It's, the leaven does not, it, it does influence those three pots, but it does not go to influence everything across. He doesn't use kudzu, right? He could have used kudzu and said it's going to influence everything and take over everything, right? No, he didn't say that. Right? The kingdom of heaven may not consume the entire world and wrap everything up into it before the return of Christ, but it will grow in God's timing just as God has planned and in God's way, and we must note that. Theologian D.A. Carson notes that the mustard seed suggests extensive growth, meaning that it covers a broad area. The kingdom of heaven covers a broad area, while the leaven, he says, notes intensive transformation, that it's, it's focused, it's concentrated on a single area. In particular, we would know in the reading of Scripture and the understanding of the Word of God that that particular area would be that it transforms and influences first and foremost the heart of man. So it is extensive in how, it's grow, in how it grows. It is intensive in how it transforms the lives of men and women around the globe. Bottom line is that the kingdom of heaven will grow, and it will indeed make a difference in your life and in the world around us. Now, as he moves past this parable, we, we find Matthew reminding us of the importance of parables in Jesus' ministry. Look there at verse 34. It's, he just notes, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, all, all, he notes all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Th this isn't saying that he only spoke in parables. That somebody asked him a question, he said a parable and then moved on. That it's not what it's saying. It says that he said nothing to them without a parable. There was always a parable accompanying what he taught and what he explained to them. We see that in the rest of the Gospels. And so we see Jesus teaching and him using parables to indeed teach the people. Now, Matthew's point here is this. What does he say in verse 35? Why does he do this? This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now, just think back. You that have been with us as we studied through Matthew, remember we, we talked about that when we first started the book. Remember we, we first started and we talked about how Matthew is very focused. He's very intentional. He's writing to a Jewish audience and he's teaching the people that Christ is the Messiah. So how is he doing that? One of the, one of the primary ways he's doing that. He's doing that by constantly pulling text from the Old Testament and saying, look, this is what God's Word says in the Old Testament. Here's what the prophets spoke, and here's who Jesus is, and here's how Jesus is fulfilling what the prophets spoke. Time and time again, Matthew is bringing us back to the Old Testament to reveal the veracity of who Christ is, 
that he is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah sent to save God's people from their sins. And so here he does the same thing. He says that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And the prophet he's referring to here is Asaph from Psalm 78. Psalm 78, you, you may remember, and it's a relevant psalm for our day today as we, we um, uh, congratulate our seniors. In Psalm 78, we, we read a lot, verse, first eight verses of it. The first eight verses is Asaph's call to the community, to the people of God, and saying, we are resolved, we will not fail to raise up the next generation. We will not fail to tell them of the mighty works of God. We will tell them, we will speak parables to them, we will tell them sayings of old. Why? Asaph says, so that they might place their trust in God. Well, the rest of the psalm, Psalm 78, you go through, I, I, don't, I don't remember how long the psalm is, it's 80, 90 verses, I think it is, but it's story after story after story of the failings of the people of Israel, ways that they, they failed the Lord, ways that they rebelled against the Lord, ways that they, they ran after their own desires and their own hearts and, and the consequences of doing that. And so Asaph tells them time and time again, here are the mistakes of the people, learn from it. Learn from it. Remember this account. Remember this story. Let me put this before you, and you remember, and don't do that. Don't do it. Turn your heart from those things. Turn your heart to the Lord. Old stories with a very clear point for Asaph. Old stories in which he said, here are where the people strayed. Here is the consequences of that. Now learn from that. Don't do it. Follow and trust the Lord. And let's raise up the next generation to do that. And so here Jesus, or Matthew quotes that statement. Psalm 78, 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And he, he does that to, to help them to see the importance of, to see the importance of what is spoken, the events of what happened, and seeing it as also in the ministry of Christ here. Now, as, as he does this and he draws on Psalm 78, I, I, think, I think we'd be remiss if we don't point out for those of you in here today who are unbelievers who would say, you know what, I just don't know about Jesus. I don't know if he, if, is he really who he said he is. Then I think you have to consider time and time again, the numerous prophecies that Christ fulfilled in his life and in his death. You have to, you have to consider those. How, do, how does a man fulfill all of those prophecies? Well, a man doesn't. But the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the Messiah, does. Because he is not just a man. He is fully God. He is fully man. And so he comes and fulfills the prophecies as Matthew continues to drive us back to see. And so I think you have to answer that question, unbeliever. You have to think about that. What's the significance of Jesus Christ fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy in his life? What's the significance of that? It points to his deity. Now, the significance of Matthew saying, listen, he particularly fulfilled what the prophet said in Psalm 78 too, 
by the teaching and speaking of parables. What is the significance of that? Well, Asaph is reminding them, he's reminding them, and in Psalm 78, the psalmist uses parables. He uses these hidden truths that were revealed and, and bringing them out to make a point, to call the people to trust God and to show faithfulness to God. And now, essentially, Jesus is doing the same thing. As he teaches in parables, he's calling the people to trust in God, to walk in faithfulness to God. It was new truth that was brought back or brought out by old stories, old foundational truths and accounts and events from the Old Testament. The question in both instances, Psalm 78, in the ministry of Christ, is would the people understand, right? Would they understand? And if they understand, will they heed the teachings of Christ? Would the Israelites understand the teachings of Asaph in Psalm 78? And if they did understand it, would they heed that and not follow along that same path, but turn and trust the Lord? And as Christ comes and he teaches the people and he proclaims the gospel, he proclaims the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the question is, would the people understand that or would they be as those who hear but never understand? Would they understand? Would they heed it? Will we understand will we heed what is taught by the lord let's look down at the next set of parables in verse 44 to 46 you recall last week if you were with us we covered verses 36 to 43 it was the explanation of a previous parable so we've taken these in in, in kind of segments but if you look at verse 44 to 46 jesus gives two more parables about the kingdom He says in verse 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And these continue to, explain the kingdom, excuse me, as it does, as as Christ explains the kingdom, he's expressing the great value of the kingdom, that the the kingdom is of ultimate worth, of surpassing worth, surpassing value. And he gives two parables to help us understand and explain that. The first one is a treasure hidden in the field in verse 44. In, In verse 44, we have... This man who is seeking, he's looking, or no, I'm sorry, he's not looking for a treasure. He's, he's just a worker. He's a servant. He's out working the field. As he works the field, he, he stumbles upon a treasure. When he sees the treasure, though, he doesn't take it. He doesn't come and bring it. And the speculation is because in the story in those times, if he took it and brought it, whoever he was working under, it would be their treasure. He would lose it. Well, he, he, he sees the treasure. He just covers it up. And then he joyfully goes and he sells everything he has and goes back and purchases the field. The purchaser of the field would therefore own everything in the field. And so the man sees it. He knows the value. He doesn't turn and go, good grief. This is terrible fortune for me. I'm going to have to give up everything I have now. I'm going to have to sell my stuff and go buy the field, I guess. No, what does it say? It says that in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. He doesn't begrudgingly sell his possessions. No, he's filled with joy over them. Why? Because he understands the supreme worth 
of the treasure he's found. Right? Now, in the second instance, the second parable, in verse 45 to 46, we have a merchant, and this merchant is looking for pearls. He's searching out pearls. We we read there in verse 45 to 46 that, that, again, this merchant is searching for fine pearls. He's looking. He's on a quest, and he finds one. In verse 45 to 46, it says, On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had. He got rid of everything. He recognizes that this one pearl is not one among many pearls. It's not equal to the other pearls. It's not like, well, this is a good one. We'll just put it in the bag and put it in all the other pearls I have. No, he understands that this pearl is supreme. It's high above the others. It excels in value. It excels as a treasure. And he sells everything that he has, all that he has, to acquire this one pearl of great value. Why? Because he understands the supreme value of what he beholds. See, Jesus is using these parables to teach what? He's teaching the value of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the the truth that we have to understand is the value that we place on something is seen in what we're willing to pay for it. The value that we place on something is seen in what we're willing to pay for it. I've heard of musicians that just pay unreal amounts of money for instruments. Violins in excess of a million dollars for a violin. I saw a guy play a violin one time. I think it was, the value of it was right around $2 million, if I'm not mistaken. In my mind, who, I, I would never buy a violin for that, right? I would never buy a violin anyway because I would be a hideous, hideous thing for all of you to hear. But the musician values that instrument. He sees the, the value of it. He's willing to pay for it. He sees and he treasures it. He sees that it's special. There's something about that one that far exceeds everything else to where nothing else compares to it. So he's willing to pay the price. Now, here's the other thing we have to understand is that the converse is also true, right? The converse is also true that if we give nothing up for something, if we are not willing to pay anything, then it means we do not value it. Right? We understand that. That which we value, we're willing to pay for. That which we don't, we don't. And so where this hits home is this. If your quote-unquote Christianity is one that you give nothing up for, that you make no sacrifice for, that you're okay with it as long as it doesn't cost you anything, then you need to back up and ask, am I following Christ? Am I following the one who said, anyone who comes after me? must daily take up his cross and follow me. Am I really following this one, or have I fallen prey to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer described as this cheap grace? 
this idea that, well, I'll just, um, I'll just say, I'll just add Christianity on with other stuff, and I'll follow after. It's all good. I'm not willing, I'm not going to pay anything for it. Or are you willing to give up everything because of the surpassing value of Christ and His kingdom? J.C. Ryle said this, When a man will venture nothing for Christ's sake, we must draw the sorrowful conclusion that he has not the grace of God. What am I willing to give for Christ's sake? What are you willing to give? Is comfort too much? What's too much? How much do we value the kingdom? Two examples come to mind when we think of Scripture. Matthew, interestingly enough, Matthew is an example of one who valued Christ, who valued the kingdom so much that he would give it all to follow. He doesn't write about that himself. Matthew doesn't talk about what he gave up. Matthew just talks about calls Christ and says he followed him. But Luke records it for us. Luke says, no, no, I know what Matthew gave up. So Luke, in chapter 5, verse 27, 28, says this about Matthew. He says, after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi, that's Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. That's where Matthew ends it. Now Luke says, oh, no, no, no. Let me make it really clear what this means, that when Matthew follows Jesus, what it means, Luke says, and leaving everything, everything, he rose and followed him. Matthew left everything. How much was he willing to pay? He paid everything to follow Christ. Matthew understood. He understood that the value of following Christ would never, never, never fall short or be outweighed by the cost of discipleship. He understood that. He understood that the value of the kingdom is greater than the cost of discipleship, that following Jesus will indeed be costly, but it is impossible for the cost of following Christ to surpass the value of following Christ. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. I know that if we asked Jim Elliott and his friends that were killed for the sake of Christ, if we said, was the cost too great? Did the cost of discipleship surpass the value of Christ? Did it surpass the value of standing in the presence of the King and standing in all eternity worshiping the Holy God? Those guys would say, no, <laughs> absolutely not. The cost of discipleship will never surpass the value of following Christ. Never surpass the value of the kingdom. Paul understood that. Right? You remember Philippians 3, a pretty common passage. Philippians 3 is where Paul is kind of numbering off and telling all of his, his possessions, all of his accomplishments. He's basically saying, here's a bunch of religious pearls. Let me just set this religious pearl in front of you. I was in the tribe of Benjamin, and let me set this religious pearl in front of you. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and I'll set this pearl in front of you. I, I was zealous in persecuting the Christians, and he just keeps on doing it. He just says, hey, look at all these pretty pearls. <laughs> I mean, I was religious. I was religious. A lot of acclaim to set before the men. Oh, but then he sees Christ. 
And Paul wasn't looking for Christ. Paul's like the, the, the guy who walks out in the field and just stumbles on the treasure. Paul's going down the road to Damascus. He's not looking for Christ. He's trying to kill Christians. But God opens his eyes. God comes before him. And he beholds the supreme value of Christ. God changes his life. And so we read Paul writing about this in, in Philippians 3. In verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul's holding all these religious pearls in his hands. But Christ is the pearl of great value. And Paul casts the others aside. So I give them away. I'm done. I will pay the price. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The rest of those religious pearls are rubbish. They're rubbish. I'm going to get rid of them. Now, some of you may be asking, well, why? I mean, you talk about the kingdom being of great value. Why is it so valuable? Why is it worth so much? Let me end us with three reasons. Three reasons the kingdom is of such value. Here's the first one. The kingdom of heaven is of certain value. It's of certain value. It's a treasure that once it is yours, it cannot be taken or lost. Once it's yours, it is yours. It can't be removed from you. You can't lose it. No one's going to come in and go, give me that back. In Matthew 5.3, the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's the poor in spirit are those who understand their, their spiritual poverty, that they are nothing, they have nothing to bring to the Lord. It's the, um, the, the, the text from Rock of Ages, right? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the rock I clean. It's that, that expression, the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. When we came across that text, one of the things that we spent time on in that sermon was talking about the certainty of the kingdom of heaven. It is yours. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's not, you know what, it might be, it could be, it may be, we'll see how it turns out. No, it's is yours. Colossians 1.13, right? Colossians 1.13, the settled state of what God has done in your life as a believer. It says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins it doesn't say he might deliver us he's thinking about it he'll see if he's strong enough he see how good you are we'll see how your life pans out no it says he has delivered us from darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son it's settled it's certain or second timothy 1 9 to 12 Paul banks on the certainty of the kingdom of heaven, the certainty of Christ and God's work in his life. He says there, he says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, 
but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now listen. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul is saying, listen, God saved me, and he saved me by his grace, not according to anything I did. He saved me. He has brought salvation upon me. He's abolished death. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And here's the deal. I may be suffering Right? Paul's writing 2 Timothy from chains. He's writing knowing his death awaits. He will die shortly after this letter's written. He knows that, but he says, listen, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. He has certain hope. He has certain confidence because the kingdom is a treasure that has certain value, and he knows that God will guard it until the day in which he is entrusted to him. The kingdom of heaven is of certain value. The second reason it's valuable that you need to understand and consider, is that it is of eternal value. So it's of certain value, it's of eternal value. It will never fade, it will never diminish. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Talking about the quantity and the quality of life, he has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we see it is unfading, is it of eternal value? If you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. Or what about Peter? Peter writes, we look at this text a lot, it's one of my favorite passages, but I just come back to this time and time again. In my own walk with the Lord, it's so encouraging. In 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance. And how does he describe that inheritance? It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. The kingdom of heaven Eternal life, future, enduring value to the believer. The third reason it's valuable is it is of present value. It's of certain value, it's a future value, it is of present value. The kingdom of heaven changes your life now with peace and hope that transcends all the trials of life. Just read the New Testament. Just read the New Testament. The, the people living in New Testament times endure great trials, great difficulties, great suffering. And time and time again, the, the New Testament writers, they write and they encourage them with the gospel. They encourage them with the certainty of their salvation, the certainty of God's providence, the certainty of his sovereignty, the certainty of eternal life. So why does Peter write what he writes? It's because the people are going through suffering. They're experiencing great trials. And so Peter begins not by going, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're going through what you're going through. I don't know how you're going to make it. He doesn't start there. Peter begins with what? He begins with the gospel. He begins with the work of God. And he says, listen, don't forget 
Don't forget that God in His mercy has caused you to be saved again. He's caused you to be saved and, and you're born again. What? You're born again to a living hope. A living hope you're born to. It's hope for today. Not one that's like, well, we'll see how it pans out. It's a living hope. It's a hope right now. What about Paul? Paul writes to the Philippian believers and he's writing to them with this great intent, or not intense, but intimate uh, letter. Expressing the friendship, the joy that is in Christ. The partnership they have in the gospel. And he writes to the church there in Philippi. And they're going through. There's great uh, suffering coming upon them and trials coming upon them. And he calls them to maintain joy in the midst of trials. He calls them to stand firm in the midst of that. And as he, he writes them, what does he say? What does he remind them of? Well, listen, Philippians 3, 17 to 21. He says, brothers... Join in imitating me. Yeah, Paul's in prison. Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many others, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But listen to this word of encouragement from the Apostle. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The kingdom of heaven is of present value. And that present value comes in this instance and in our instance when you meet trials and suffering to remember that you are a citizen of heaven believer you're a citizen of heaven and because you are you eagerly await a savior it is present certainty in the knowledge of future hope for today's trials that is the value the kingdom of heaven so many times we just think about it and we think down the road and we think future. But I want you to see that it's not just something we look at down the road when we think about the kingdom of heaven. There is present value and certain value that enables you to walk the path of life with all its dangerous trials Trappings, difficulties, valleys. Those of us who are Christians walk in the certainty, in the peace, and the hope, the living hope that we walk with Christ and that He holds us in His hands. And He has given us an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, and imperishable. Now, unbeliever, the question for you is, how do you respond? How do you respond? When, when you come, and perhaps you're one who's looking, maybe, maybe you are searching, you're just, you're wanting to find God. I'm going to find God somewhere. I'm going, I'm going to see if I can find God. I'm looking. And, 
And maybe you're exploring Christianity. You're like the, the merchant who has all these pearls. You've got all these little religious pearls. Maybe you're a good kid or a good person, a good woman, a good man. You've accomplished a lot. You've got all these little pearls. So when you behold the pearl of surpassing worth and value, Jesus Christ, how do you respond? Do you cast aside all else and follow Christ? Would you do that? Maybe you're not looking. Maybe you're just here because mom and dad drug you here. Or maybe you're here because you're just bored. You wanted to see what was going on at the church down the street. Maybe you're here just to get your aunt or uncle or grandparent to stop bothering you. But Christ has been set before you. A treasure of surpassing worth. Eternal life. On the basis of grace. The grace of God. Is given through faith alone in Christ alone. Would you respond in joy? Joyfully casting aside all things, selling everything you had and giving everything for Christ? What would your response be? I would just remind you that any price that you could pay, unbeliever, will never, never surpass the value of Jesus Christ. Never. And believers, I would just encourage you as we close to always remember that. Always remember that. Because the onslaught and the attacks of Satan is, that's too much. That's too great a cost. Don't do that. But the cost will never outweigh the value of Jesus Christ. Never. Never. So knowing that, knowing the certainty, the certain value, the present value, the future value of Christ and the kingdom of heaven, may we as God's people run boldly and headstrong, headlong into the calling of Christ in our lives. Maybe that means you moving, going to another country. Maybe that means you changing career paths. Maybe it means just adding to your career path that I'm no longer going to just do this for my own bank account. I'm going to do it as a platform to magnify the name of Christ, to advance the gospel. There's no cost too great. No cost too great. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for saving us. God, we pray. God, captivate our hearts with your surpassing value of you and your kingdom. God, let us not get sidetracked or distracted, but God, let us set our gaze upon you and seek first your kingdom and your righteousness.
And God, I, I do pray for friends here. Perhaps friends listening later or right now online. God, would you work in their lives, their unbelievers, God? Would you show them and allow them to see the surpassing value of Jesus Christ? That they might, they might turn from their sins and trust in you today. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us first. And God, we stand and we sing and we rejoice in you, our Redeemer now. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.